Well, if you have your copy of God's Word, and I trust that you do, go ahead and take it and turn with me to Psalm chapter 100. Psalm 100. Here we are in the middle of the holiday season, beautiful time of joy and wonder, family and friends. It's always an amazing time. It's my favorite season, and I think because everybody loves it so much, uh, we begin rushing into it faster and faster every year. Uh, Somewhere, uh, I read it once that Thanksgiving gets missed uh, because, you know, the highlight is on Christmas. And so some people say that Thanksgiving's like John the Baptist. Thanksgiving's just the forerunner of something much greater yet to come. And so uh, Christmas just keeps getting pushed forward and forward. Right after Halloween, we do the Christmas stuff. And uh, you see in Costco, all the trees are up and ready to be sold. And it's just an amazing season where it gets faster and faster. Pretty soon it's just going to be, you know, July 4th. Happy 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. And Merry Christmas along with it. Um, We just, we forget. We miss. We go straight through Thanksgiving. And I know some of you are are very offended by that. I've had conversations with some of you who get very frustrated, even at myself, because I'm already listening to Christmas music. I love Christmas music. I think there's no uh, reason not to celebrate Jesus being born. So uh, we always celebrate the birth of Christ. So I love Christmas music. I love being able to celebrate uh, Jesus's birth. Um, But there are some people that say, no, you cannot listen to Christmas music until after Thanksgiving. You, you wouldn't dare put up your Christmas tree until after Thanksgiving. And so to you, because I love you and I serve you, I wanted to slow down and highlight Thanksgiving. I don't want to let it go by. I think that we can so quickly go past a season of Thanksgiving without highlighting what we should be thankful for, how we should be thankful And so I wanted to do that this morning. I I felt it appropriate to slow down. Uh, We've never done this as a church where we've taken two weeks to do kind of a highlight of Thanksgiving. We've always done, uh, not always, but sometimes we do a Thanksgiving message the Sunday before Thanksgiving, but we've never done a little mini sermon series on Thanksgiving. And I felt it appropriate, not uh, not just because we haven't ever done that as a church, and I wanted to slow down and really highlight Thanksgiving, but also I, I felt it appropriate because we have just finished an election last week and it's all over the news. And I've heard from a lot of Christians um, that yes, there are some things that we are, are saddened about about the election and for sure some things didn't go maybe the way that we wanted them to go. But I've heard a lot of Christians that are complaining, very disgruntled, very discontent over the result of the election and really just kind of looking ahead into the future, just thinking everything's gonna end up badly. And I just, I want us to be thankful. I want us to be realistic, yes, but I want us to be thankful. I I hope and pray that the tone of our church, the aura of our church is one of thankfulness, gratefulness, gratitude, and contentment, and not one of pure nostalgia that, oh, the best days were behind us and everything's going to go bad ahead of us. And so to that end, I want to dive into Psalm 100. It's the only Psalm in the Bible that has the specific heading, a Psalm for Thanksgiving. That's the only Psalm in the whole Bible that has that specific heading. Charles Spurgeon says, nothing can be more sublime this side of heaven than the singing of this noble Psalm by a vast congregation. It is all ablaze with grateful adoration. I love that. It's a blaze. There's a fire burning in this psalm, and I pray that its sparks would fall on us this morning. With joyful singing, we should praise the Lord. We should sing. We should be gloriously enraptured with joy. There's so much power in singing. Singing has the uh, ability to capture our hearts, transform our character, strengthen our affections. I've heard one pastor say it this way, we sing when we're happy, we sing when we're not happy, and when we're not happy, we sing until we get happy. We should just always be singing for the purpose of being happy in Jesus and to do so with joy. The Puritans, who a lot of people would say were uh, just kind of prudish in the way that they went about life, which is totally incorrect, couldn't be further from the truth. They said this, quote, while you can, you can and should fast any day of the week, you must never fast on Sunday. Because everything on Sunday has to do with worship and everything having to do with worship has to do with joy. I I just wonder, how joyful of a person are you? I think that this psalm will 
do a, a really good job in diagnosing our own hearts of how happy we are in Jesus and how much people around us would see that emanate from us. This is why this psalm thousands of years ago was given the Latin title Jubilate. Jubilate, not Juba Frappuccino, Jubilate, because Jubilate means, oh, be joyful in Latin. Be joyful. It's a command. Be happy. And so my question this morning, as we read this chapter, is our worship through song marked by an engagement with the Lord that is vigorous in its joy over who God is and what God has done? So as we read, ask yourself, does this sound like me? Does this sound like us as a church? And how can we press into it and be molded and shaped by it this morning? Psalm 100, a psalm for thanksgiving. Shout joyfully to the Lord. All the earth, serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name because the Lord is good. Because his loving kindness is everlasting. Because his faithfulness endures to all generations. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for a psalm of thanksgiving as we enter into a season of thanksgiving. I pray that it wouldn't just be a season for us as a church, that we would be thankful year-round. We would be grateful year-round. We would rejoice and be joyful year-round. That this psalm would be true of our souls every day. And specifically as we live in a world where people around us are so fixated on the negative and are complaining and are discontent. God, may we be marked by joyful contentment. May it start in our hearts and just flow forth in our speech, in our praise, in our evangelism, in all of our relationships. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning to see and to savor our amazing God. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Psalm 100 is the concluding psalm in a series of psalms that begins in Psalm 93, and they're they called the Theocratic Psalms. They are psalms all about God being king. Jewish commentators actually look at Psalm 95 through 100 as being the core of the Theocratic Psalms, and various traditions assign them for reciting during six days prior to the Sabbath. Psalm 95, if you were to read it, it's very similar to Psalm 100. So this is all about the kingship of God, the kingly reign of God, and what that produces in and through us. And one commentator says, the whole of this psalm speaks of that unashamedly joyful response to life, which seeks to praise God for all that he has done and for all that he is. And really, that is the outline for us this morning. This psalm tells us that we are to worship God Number one, in the way that he deserves. And number two, for who he is and for what he's done. That's what we should do. Worship God in the way that he deserves for who he is and for what he's done. So let's take point number one. Worship God in the way he deserves. You can't just worship God however we want to worship him. He has commanded us and he actually gives us seven specific imperatives in this chapter. Seven commands of how we are to worship the Lord. Let's go through them quickly. Command number one, shout joyfully. Shout joyfully. Shout joyfully. An exclamation of exaltation. It's a triumphant shout to the Lord. Some of your Bibles might even translate it as make a joyful noise. This word for shouting joyfully is used in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 5, when Israel is getting the Ark of the Covenant back and they are praising the Lord for receiving the Ark of the Covenant back. The Philistines had stolen it, but they're getting it back and they're praising the Lord and they're singing with magnificent loud shouts. And that's what this word is. It's used there. And it specifically says in verse five that they are shouting so loudly that the earth begins to shake. We are to do that as we gather together. We are to shout so loudly and joyfully that the earth around us shakes. It's like being at a sporting event. I don't know when the last time you went to maybe a football game or a basketball game. 
maybe when your, your team is on defense, the home team's on defense, and, and uh, you know, maybe it's third down and a, a long seven, and they're trying to stop them and bring up fourth down and make them punt. And you see that, you see that, uh, that sign that shows up on the jumbotron that says, make some noise, right? I, I've been to sporting events with some of my friends where we are just in the deepest, most intimate conversation, right? We're talking with one another and somebody says to me, one of my close friends says, you know, I've got to share something really heavy on my heart. It's been challenging. I really don't know what to do. And then that thing pops up, makes some noise. And it's like, as an obedient servant, they just stop everything that they're doing, completely disconnect and just shout, right? They're, they're sharing with me their deepest soul concern. I've got this really challenging issue. Please, I need prayer. And then they see it and they just go, ah, and they, they scream and then they go back. So anyway, as I was saying, could you please pray for me? Because I have a big concern in my, my life. That's what this This verse is saying, shout joyfully to the Lord. Acknowledge that he is king. There should be an expectation, a joyful expectation of coming before the Lord with excitement. This is a very specific Hebrew word that is used of welcoming the king when he would enter a city. Of saying, our king is here, he's arrived, we're safe. Make a joyful noise. By the way, this isn't a prescription for tone-deaf worship. This is a fanfare for a conquering king showing up and saving his people. And it's appropriate to be loud. Uh, my, my kids, uh, we tell them often, you know, use your inside voice. There's a time and a place for inside voice. Church isn't the time and the place for inside voice. Church is the time and place. Amen, Bob. Church is the time and place for shouting. It's the time and the place where we get together and we praise and exalt the Lord for who he is and for what he's done. It's appropriate to be loud. One commentator says, the enthusiasm of Israelite worship is illustrated throughout the Psalms and shouts are raised, praises are chanted and sung while musical instruments are played and horns are blown. The noise of the temple worship was legendary. I wonder if it is in our church. But we don't just shout for shouting's sake. Shout for joy. Shout joyfully to the Lord. We shout to the Lord. It's directional. It's aimed at something. It's aimed at someone. It's aimed at the Lord. It's aimed at Yahweh, the Lord. All capital L-O-R-D means that's God's personal name, Yahweh. He is our personal Savior. He is our personal God, the covenant-keeping name of our God. So this means that Worship through song isn't directed at us. It isn't for us. It's for God. It's directed at him. And so it's enthusiastically filled with specific passion and heartfelt emotion toward God. Shout joyfully to the Lord and then all the earth. Every single person should be doing this. This is an ambitious goal. All the earth. But this is exactly what we want. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want on earth all people to be worshiping God this way. Have you ever noticed that the best worshipers and most passionate worshipers are usually the most passionate evangelists? Because a cosmically glorious God deserves cosmically glorious worship. Wherever God rules, wherever God reigns, there should be singing. And so we sing. We sing to the Lord. All the earth, all the earth has this opportunity. There is no single person, no group of people that have a greater advantage of worshiping the Lord and singing to him. I think there are a lot of people sometimes in church circles where there's this idea of a category of Christians. You've got professional Christians, and then you've got non-professional Christians. You've got the laymen, you've got the professional Christians. First of all, biblically, nothing could be further from the truth. And secondly, this passage is saying all the earth has the exact same ability, the exact same prerogative to be able to worship the Lord this way. I don't have any more of an advantage to do this because I'm a pastor. Luke doesn't have any more of an advantage to do this because he can play the guitar and he can sing. Every single person can and should do this. And we all have equal opportunity to do this. You don't have to change your job. There are only few jobs that you cannot do this in. And those would be the explicit jobs that are sinful, right? You can't be a professional robber and do this well, right? You have to quit that job and and stop being a sinner in that specific way and repent and turn to Christ. And then you can worship the Lord. Every single person, all the earth, shout joyfully to the Lord. That's the first command. Command number two, 
serve the Lord with gladness. Serve the Lord with gladness. This is verse two. Serve, that's a word for being committed to, being a a slave of, to orient your entire life around the service of a sovereign master. It also can mean worship. That's why some of your translation might actually use the word worship. Serve the Lord with gladness or worship the Lord with gladness. It's something more than just singing a song. You are a worshiper your entire life. Everything that you do is either worshiping yourself and what you desire or worshiping the Lord. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 12, present your lives as living sacrifices. Every aspect of your life should be worshiping the Lord, finding your delight in him. That's why Paul says elsewhere in Colossians 3 verse 23, that we can do earthly things with reverence and worship to the Lord. Do your work heartily as unto the Lord. Whatever job you're doing, whatever work you're doing, worship the Lord in that work. Serve the Lord. This is all the time. So if you think of worship, It's just a one-time thing on Sunday mornings. This passage will help you understand it's much more than that. That's why we specifically at CBC try as often as we speak of worship to put the uh, qualifier on it, worship through song, worship through reading. We are worshiping right now. We are worshiping the Lord through the preaching of his word, through the listening and attentiveness to the word of God. We are worshiping the Lord in all that we do. The question is, are we worshiping him or are we worshiping ourselves? And note, Worship the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, with happiness, with joy. Do you live your entire life with the goal of being happy in Jesus? Worship the Lord with gladness. Notice it is not enough just to worship the Lord. There's a qualifier here, worship the Lord with gladness. Gladness. And if you are not living out that prepositional phrase with gladness, you're not worshiping the Lord the way that God requires. And this is serious to the Lord. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, verses 47 through 48. God says, Because you did not serve me with joy and a happy heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you will serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and the lack of all things. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Why? Why such a punishment that's given to Israel? The reason is because they didn't worship with joy and gladness. They worshiped, but not with joy and gladness. This is serious to God. Our emotions are serious to the Lord. Richard Wells says, the strong emotions of the Psalms make many modern people uncomfortable, which is ironic since our culture is fascinated by feelings. We seem to be stuck and fixated on our feelings. And yet when it comes to scripture and when it comes to Christians, most often, especially in our circles, we just throw feelings away. We throw emotions away. Some people say, well, you know, godly mature people Don't make fools of ourselves like this. That's for immature people. That's for like really young, really passionate people. But I'm an older person, I'm mature, and I will just stand stiff as a board during the singing. I I just think that's nonsense. I don't think that's anywhere in the scripture. Read Revelation 19, verses 1 through 6. We see a multitude before the Lord, and that multitude is singing with a loud voice that could be translated as a roar of rushing waters. It's deafening how loud they are. Because they're so excited about God. Think about our kids. They sing here on the front row with us before uh, they, they go to children's ministry. They're here on the front row. They're singing. They're, they're watching us sing. They're hearing us sing. They know what we get excited about. And I wonder if they see our excitement at church matching our excitement for other things. But what would happen if if we're singing, if we're hanging out and the kids are on the front row and all of a sudden through this door, Lightning McQueen and Mater walk in, right? What would our kids do? If you don't know who Lightning McQueen and Mater are, you don't have kids. What would our kids do if they saw their favorite character in Pixar movies coming to life and walking in and saying hi? They would go nuts, right? Can't, Can't you just see them? Can't you just see little Desmond just walking up and giving a handshake? Hello. And then walking back to Jake going, I met Lightning McQueen, right? Can't you just see the joy that they would have? How much more so should we have joy when the God of the universe is calling us to come before him? 
Worship is saying God is amazing. And we aren't cheering for him to win. We're cheering because we know he's already won. I wonder if maybe your life is not filled with vibrancy and joy because you aren't celebrating God the way that he commands. We need to reshape our perspective of praise with a biblical understanding of why we should celebrate the Lord. Shout joyfully, that's number one. Serve the Lord, number two. Command number three, come before him with joyful singing. Come before him. Command number three, come before him. How you enter into the presence of the king is very important. And you and I don't get to dictate how we want to and how we choose to enter into God's presence. God, the king, tells us this is how you do it. And how do we do it? We come before him with joyful songs. God gave us the amazing gift of music. He created songs. He created singing. He created melodies. He created music. And so we get to sing. Come before him with joyful singing. We say a lot that it's hard to be a Christian if you don't like reading. God has revealed himself in a book. It's also hard to be a Christian if you don't like singing. God commands us to sing over and over and over again. Martin Luther says music is to be praised as second only to the word of God because by music, all the emotions are swayed. That is why there are so many songs and so many psalms. This precious gift has been bestowed on men alone to remind them that they are created to praise and magnify the Lord. The precious gift of singing. Singing is a command, but it's also a gift. All of God's commands are gifts. So it's a gift to us to enjoy God. Jonathan Edwards says the duty of singing praises to God seems to be given wholly to excite and express religious affections. There is no other reason why we should express ourselves to God in verse rather than in prose and with music, except that these things have a tendency to move our affections. I love the way Piper says it. The reason why we sing is because there are depths and heights and intensities and kinds of emotions that will not be satisfactorily expressed by mere prosaic forms or even po poetic readings. These are realities that demand to break out of prose into poetry and some demand that that poetry be stretched into song. Gospel-centered, theologically informed poetry stretched into song. Come before him with, again, not just singing, but happy, joyful, glad singing. Spurgeon says, our happy God should be worshiped by happy people. We should be the happiest people in the world. God's wrath has been completely satisfied. We have no guilt in life. We have no fear in death. We should be the happiest people in the world. Jim Boyce says, the people of God are to praise God loudly because they are happy with him and in him. So volume alone is not sufficient in this psalm. It must be, our singing must be distinctively joyful, distinctively happy. In the midst of the volume, in the midst of the noise, there should be a distinct, joyful, uh, discerned in the way that we sing. Now, of course, there is an appropriateness to being silent. There's an appropriateness to grieving, to mourning. And there are psalms that dictate that. In fact, the majority of the psalms are lament psalms. So that is a reality. But this psalm isn't speaking to that issue. And ultimately, we're going to talk at the end of this message about how to do that well. Even in lamenting, we can still have a heart that is inflamed with passion for the Lord. The bottom line is singing isn't a matter of personal preference. God has said, this is how you are to come before me. Come before me with joyful singing. And you might be given towards a much more quiet, uh, attitude, a much more quiet personality. Totally fine. You still can be passionate. You still can be passionate. We say a lot at church that in singing and in worship through song, we do not want empty-headed emotionalism. We don't want empty-headed emotionalism. We don't want to just feel for the purpose of feeling. We don't want to just have emotions for the purpose of having emotions. Our emotions need to be fueled by our understanding of the truth. But likewise, we need to be very careful, and I think our circle needs to be most often careful about this reality of being empty-hearted intellectuals. We need to be careful of being empty-hearted intellectuals, saying, I know truth, but that truth doesn't translate into any emotion or passion for the Lord. We need to be careful about being empty-headed in our emotionalism. We need to be careful about being empty-hearted in our intellectualism. And my question to you is, which one do you struggle with the most?
The reality is that honoring God is never an emotion by itself or intellectualism by itself. Worshiping the Lord is never an emotion by itself or intellectualism by itself. It's always both. It's always both. That's why command number four is to know. So we have shout joyfully, serve the Lord, come before him with joyful singing. And now command number four, know. Know that the Lord is God. The psalmist is now providing the reason for worship, the rationale for giving thanks. The why of worship informs the how of worship. You worship this way of shouting joyfully, serving with gladness, and coming before him with joyful singing when you know these truths. You sing based on knowledge, and knowing truth brings about worship. The more you know, the more you will worship. You cannot appropriately shout, serve, give thanks, and praise unless you know. There's a strange movement in church circles that say, I don't want to know more because the more that I know, the less mystery I have about God and less mystery I know about God, the more I I just become stiff in worship and I don't enjoy worshiping the Lord with passion. So I just want to be ignorant. I don't need to worry about knowing more about God. I want to know less about God so I can worship him better. I don't understand that personally. And I empathize with what John Piper says regarding this this specific ideology. He says this, quote, there is an odd notion that if we use our minds to grow in our knowledge of God, mystery will diminish and with it a sense of wonder and reverence. And I call this notion odd for two reasons. One is that no matter how many millions of ages I use my mind to know more and more of God's majesty, his glories will never be in danger of being exhausted. What is not yet known by God or of God by finite creatures will always be limitless. You honor this truth more by shameless growth in the knowledge of God. And the second reason I find the notion odd, that thinking about God, knowing more and more of God jeopardizes our worship of God, is that without knowing him, we can't worship him in a way that honors him. God is not honored when people get excited about how little they know of him. I love that. So our praise must be intelligent and informed if it's to be biblical praise. Know, know that the Lord is God. Know. Some people say, yeah, but I I don't want to have to think when I'm singing. I just want to feel. I don't want to have to think. I just want to feel. I want to get lost in a sea of emotion. Now, I love emotion. You know, I'm a very emotional person. And the text has already told us we need to be emotional in the way that we come before the Lord. But there's a danger here when emotions become the primary reason that we sing or the primary goal in our singing. In fact, I think that if emotion or a sense of feeling or a sense of uh, just an emotional, a sea of emotions in worship through song, if that's the ultimate goal that you have, I think that you have a danger of idolatry because now you are no longer worshiping the Lord for who he is and what he's done. You are worshiping the Lord for the purpose of getting this feeling. So ultimately, you're worshiping the Lord for your desired end. I want to feel a certain way, and worship is the avenue for feeling that way, and so therefore I sing to gain this feeling. If you worship only for the reason to try and get goosebumps going on your neck, then you are in danger of idolatry. And so that's why the psalmist says, yes, sing with gladness, with joy. Sing with passionate emotions. But you also have to know. You have to do both. Know What are we supposed to know? What informs our worship through song? Know that the Lord is God and he is the one who made us, not we ourselves. The fundamental reason why we worship is God is God and we are not. And God is the creator. God is the maker. God's the sustainer. Is it any wonder why the enemy would want to sell evolution so badly in uh, in and around the world, right? To try and get evolution to go forth so that God isn't the creator. This is a reason why we have to worship. God made us. And yet we live so often as if we created ourselves. That's why he says, not we ourselves. We didn't make ourselves. We don't sustain ourselves. We are not autonomous from God. When we stop and understand this truth, we recognize we are completely dependent on God. He does not sleep. We need sleep. He never slumbers. R.C. Sproul says, the grand difference between a human being and a supreme being is precisely this. Apart from God, I cannot exist. Apart from me, God always exists. 
God does not need me in order for him to be. I need God in order for me to be. I am dependent, I am fragile, and this is how I differ from God. So the psalmist says, when we come to the Lord to sing, we don't admire ourselves or our achievements, we admire God and his glory. We are so preoccupied by ourselves. We are so fixated on our accomplishments, on our achievements, on what's going on in our world. Psalmist is saying, get your eyes off of yourself and get them on the Lord. Be fascinated with him. Be impressed by him. Know that the Lord, number one, is God. And know, number two, that we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. These are the two things we're to know. The Lord is God. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. We need him. We're dependent on him. And then we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This adds such intimacy to this relationship. We aren't just his creatures. We are his people. He's redeemed a people. I, I think specifically in context, he's talking about ethnic Israel. Ethnic Israel has been redeemed by God. God has brought them out of Egypt. God has made them a people. But obviously for you and for me, our good shepherd has called us by name. John 10, 14 through 15. We have heard the voice of the good shepherd, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. And since the Lord is our shepherd, Psalm 23, there is nothing that I need that I'm lacking. I have everything that I need because I have him. That's why we celebrate. Know that the Lord is God. He made us, so we are dependent on him. And he provides. He is our shepherd. He cares for us. He loves us. And therefore, if I have him, I have everything that I need. This is Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17 to the end of the chapter. The, the, the fig tree might not blossom. The fruit of the vine might wither. I might lose everything. But as long as I have him, I can exult in him because I have salvation, redemption. I have hope. I have everything that I need if I have him. This is all of grace and it should make us so, so grateful. Number five, a fifth command in verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Enter his gates. This is how, again, we are called. We're commanded to enter, come to him, enter with thanksgiving. What are the gates? What are the courts? That's the temple, the gates of the temple, the courts of the temple. This is like the picture. I don't know if you've ever been to a concert like a, a, a rock concert, concert where people are really excited to get into the show, into the venue. I've been to many of those in my lifetime. And you're standing outside the doors. The doors are locked. They haven't opened yet. And it's just the most amazing feeling being with those people. There's a camaraderie there with each other. And typically we're singing songs of the, the artists that we're about to go see. And then all of a sudden those doors open. And when those doors open, everybody just screams and we all just start running in to find the best seat we could possibly find. That's the idea here. We are entering with such excitement, such exuberance, with thanksgiving, with praise. We get to be in his temple. But I wonder when it says enter his gates with thanksgiving, come into his presence with praise. I wonder how often we come into his presence with complaining. We are such a complaining people. That's why the psalmist says do it with thanksgiving. To what extent is thankfulness a dominant disposition of your heart. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Command number six, give thanks to him. Give thanks to him. Give thanks. But notice it's not just give thanks, it's give thanks to him. Thanksgiving requires an object. If you're thankful, you need to be thankful for something and need to be thankful to something. It's not enough to just feel thankful. You have to give thanks, enumerating what you are grateful for, expressing it. Give thanks to him. Everything in life should draw, you should draw a line back to the goodness of God based off of everything that you've been given. Every good gift is from God, James chapter one. And so therefore we should give thanks to him for all that he's given. Can I just ask you, is there anything good going on in your life that you can be thankful for? Is there anything good going on in your life? itemize these things. Maybe for Thanksgiving, maybe you gather around with your family and your friends and you can itemize. What are you thankful for? We, in our family, we have a little journal in the season of Thanksgiving and we just write down every day something that we're thankful for. Itemize it. List it out. Because if you don't catalog the things that you're thankful for, it's basically just trying to collect rainwater in your hands. It's going to slip through. I'm thankful for life. I'm thankful for things. I'm thankful for what God's given. No, itemize it. Be specific. You need fuel for your worship. Do that today. Gather around with 
uh, church family, gather around with friends, have lunch together and talk about what are you most thankful for in the season? Let's list it out. Five things, 10 things. What are you thankful for? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what? I have a couple things, but my list is really short. I'm going through really hard times. And I know that there are people in our church family that are going through really hard times. And maybe your list of things that you feel that you could be thankful for are really short. I would say two things. Number one, that's why we need fellowship with others. Thank the Lord for the things that other people are enjoying and plead with them to pray for you to help you be thankful in the midst of a season of drought. Go up to somebody today and hear what God's doing in their life and pray with them, for them, and give thanks to God for what's going on. Look for fuel to praise God in the life of others. And then number two, I would say for you personally, start working backwards. Start working backwards. Look at what God has done in your life, in your family. Look at what God has done in previous generations. Look through church history. Be thankful for how God has brought you to a place. We did this on Reformation Day on October 31st of praising the Lord for what he did through Martin Luther and through the Reformation. Praise the Lord. The bottom line is the psalmist says, give thanks to him. Don't just have a thankful feeling. Give thanks specifically to God. And then finally, number seven, the seventh command, bless his name. Bless his name. That just literally means give honor that is due to who God is. Give honor due his name. So we've got seven things, seven commands that tell us how God requires us to worship him. Tells us what God wants from us in our worship. Shout joyfully, serve the Lord, come before him, know that he's God, enter his gates with thanksgiving, give thanks to him, bless his name. So my question this morning is where do we struggle with the opposite of these commands? We've been given a very clear list of commands that God has said, this is how you worship me. What about the opposites? Instead of shouting joyfully to the Lord, maybe we are quiet about the Lord. Maybe we are reserved in our worship. Maybe we do serve the Lord, but we serve the Lord with boredom. Instead of gladness, we serve the Lord as an act of drudgery. Okay, I guess I have to obey. Enter into his presence. Come before him with joyful singing. Maybe we don't even go to his presence at all. Or maybe if we do, we, we do so with a mopey attitude instead of a thankful heart. Know that the Lord is God. Maybe we don't like pressing into knowing truth about God. Maybe we stay away from that and press into feelings. Know that the Lord is God. He made us. We didn't make ourselves. Maybe we think more highly of ourselves than we should. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Maybe we don't enter his gates. Maybe we don't draw near to him. Maybe we feel like we have to clean ourselves up before we enter his presence. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Maybe we just complain. Or maybe it's just general thanks. Not to him, but just general thanks. I wonder which of these seven commands you tend to struggle with the most. When it comes to worship through song, there's a category given to the struggles that churches face with how we choose what to sing, how we choose what instruments to play. It's known as the quote-unquote worship wars. We all have our preferences, and therefore when we walk into church and we see the songs, we see the set list, we see the instrumentation, we, see the, uh, we hear the volume, we have our preferences. I prefer this, I prefer this, I prefer this. But this is a reminder to us, this song. It's telling us worship isn't directed at us. Worship isn't directed to us. It's directed to God. When we come to God and worship through song, we are not the audience. God is the audience. We are the performers, all of us together. When the subject of worship through song is raised, there, is, there should be only one question that rises above every other question. And that question is, what is the kind of worship that God wants? Not what's the kind of worship I want or I like. It's what is the kind of worship that God wants. And we've been given a list of the things that God desires in worship. Our preference isn't the aim, his preferences. I don't know about you, but one of my struggles in worship through song is I can tend to feel that God is just happy with the, the trying of worship. That all I have to do is show up and try. I just got to throw up to him. Here's an effort and he'll enjoy it. Do you just toss up your worship and say, eh, that's good enough? Or do you say, is it conforming to what God has required of me? Is it, is it conforming to what God desires from me? 
Instead of asking, how is the music today? How did you like the music today? We should ask, how did God like the music today? How did God like our worship today? How do you think he enjoyed our singing today? Was it joyful? This is marked with gladness and thanksgiving. Why? Because God is our everything. Our love for him, our happiness in him transcends every other thing in this life that even could potentially make us unhappy. When you say, I am joyful, no matter what's going on around me, I will not let the fullness of my praise for him be spoiled by anything going on in my life. Even when my heart is breaking, even when I've lost my job, even when my marriage is falling apart, even when my children are not doing what I'm asking them to do, even when I have no money in the bank, you name it, joyful worship comes from a heart that says God's better than all of it. God's better than all of it. But you might be here this morning, you might say, you know, I don't feel that way. I don't feel like God is better than all of it. I may maybe know that that's true, but I feel like I'm struggling to believe that. I agree with you. That's why we gather together as the church. That's why we gather together to remind each other, no, he is better. He is better than anything in this world. But here's what churches tend to do. Here's what the main struggle in churches is when it comes to this issue. If you don't feel happy in the Lord, then sometimes churches will design a worship service to manipulate your feelings. But that's not what we do. That's not what the psalmist is telling us to do. The psalmist tells us, let truth inform your feelings. If you came into church this morning and you don't feel happy in the Lord, praise the Lord that you're here. Because the psalmist says, hey, number one, here's how we should be happy in the Lord. But he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just end in verse four. Give thanks to him, bless his name, done. He grounds it in the motivation. Here's why we can live those things out. Verse five is point number two in our outline. We have the seven commands. Worship God in the way that he demands us to worship him. But now number two, point number two, worship God for who he is and for what he's done. Worship him for who he is and for what he's done. We let truth inform our emotions. Worship is a reflex to revelation. It's a response that's stimulated by something that we know to be true about God. And there are three things that the psalmist gives us that are true about God. Number one, because, give thanks to him and bless his name because, do all these seven things because, verse five, Yahweh is good. He is good. We praise the Lord. We give thanks. We're glad and happy because he's good. He's our creator and he's our good creator. It would be a scary thing if he was just our creator, this omnipotent, omnipresent God who wasn't good. That would be a terrifying thing. But our God is good. Psalm 119, verse 68, you are good and you do good. Psalm 145, 17, everything that the Lord does is good. Now, not only is he the omnipotent, omnipresent creator, but he is a good God. We praise him, number one, because he is good. We praise him, number two, because his loving kindness is everlasting. We praise him because his loving kindness is everlasting. That loving kindness, that's that word hesed, his hesed love. Covenant keeping faithfulness. There are so many different definitions for this word hesed. One of my favorite is that when the one from whom I have no right to expect anything gives me everything. That's hesed love. When the one from whom I have the right to expect nothing I have no right before God to expect anything from him. And then he lavishes everything on me. That's Hesed love. God is good. We praise him because he's good. Number two, God is filled with loving kindness and it is everlasting. It will never end. It will go on not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And then finally, number three, his faithfulness endures to all generations. He is a faithful God. He will not go back on his promises. What he has said uh, as he's promised it to us, he will come to pass. It will come to pass. He will make it come to pass. This is First Thessalonians chapter five. He is faithful and he will bring it to bear. He will bring it to come to pass. Our God is faithful. And this is all in the Old Testament. We can read this Psalm with New Testament eyes. I love how J.I. Packer says it in his book, Knowing God. Quote, God's love is an exercise of his goodness. The Bible means by God's goodness, his cosmic generosity. Of this goodness, God's love is the supreme and most glorious manifestation. 
God's love is an exercise of his goodness towards sinners whose nature is corrupt in God's sight and who merit only condemnation and final banishment from his presence. It is staggering that God should love sinners. And yet it's true. God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners. It's not a vague, diffused goodwill toward everyone in general and no one in particular. Its nature is to particularize both its objects and its effects. And God's love to sinners was manifested, was expressed by the gift of his son to be their savior. The measure of love is how much it gives and the measure of the love of God is the gift of his only son. The New Testament writers constantly point to the cross of Christ as the crowning proof of the reality of and boundlessness of God's love. His love will never fail. He's good, he's filled with loving kindness, and he's faithful. And those three elements of God's character, who he is and what he does, should overwhelm us. It should overwhelm us. Did you notice that none of the reasons for why we give thanks have to do with our circumstances? Did you notice none of these reasons? We are to know that God is creator. That's never going to change. That we are his people. That's never going to change. That he is good. That's never going to change. That his loving kindness is everlasting. That's never going to change. And that his faithfulness exists to all generations. That's never going to change. So the motivations for why we sing are unchanging motivations. So if things are going well, circumstantially in your life, enjoy it. That's what we've been studying in Ecclesiastes. Give thanks for it. But if things aren't going well, good news. This chapter tells us that we still have reason to be joyfully glad in who God is, to sing with praise and passionately do so. None of these things will change. Therefore, we always have a reason to praise. And this can make all the difference in the world in the midst of trials and suffering. So liberating to know that our worship of God is not rooted in our circumstances. We will always have a reason to praise. What good news. God made us. We are his people. He's good. He's faithful. He's filled with love. No matter what we're experiencing today, those are all realities. So brothers and sisters, can I plead with you? Crawl inside those realities today. He made us. We're his people. He's good. He's faithful. He's filled with love. Crawl into those words and never leave even if circumstances change around you, even if everything changes around you, he will never change. So let those realities be your motivation for praise always. Lastly, look at the most unlikely nature of the recipients of the invitation here to sing. We have been given, verse four, an invitation, enter his gates. We've been given an invitation in verse 2, come before him. It's us who have been invited. It's not angels. It's not creation. It's you and it's me. And we should be freshly amazed at this gracious invitation to enter into his presence and praise him. Derek Kidner says, the simplicity of the invitation in verse four, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise, may conceal the wonder of it. Here's the wonder. The courts are his courts, not ours. And the Bible says that God's gates, the gates to his courts are shut to the unclean. Think of Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever enter into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. We are not allowed entrance on our own into those gates, into his courts. But here we are allowed, we're invited. Come on in, God is saying. And not only are we allowed to enter the outer courts, we are told to enter the inner courts, to enter the holy of holies, thrown open by a new and living way that Christ has made for us. This should be cause for eternal, everlasting praise. Because you and me, sinners who deserve death, who have been outcasts because of our sin, have been given a way to enter into the holy presence of God. How is that possible? That's only possible through the blood of Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as we praise the Lord, we're praising him. We are entering his presence and praising him. And as we're doing so, we're even praising him and exalting him for the gospel. This is gospel compelled, controlled, consummate, climactic worship because of who Jesus is and because of all that he's done. Worship is the only right response to the gospel. And I just want to plead with you, if you do not know why the gospel is worthy of our worship, why Christ through the gospel is worthy of our every affection, I would plead with you, don't leave until you've asked somebody next to you, why is Jesus so amazing? Why is the gospel so impactful? Why do you love Jesus so much? We would be happy. We would love to tell you. That would be such an immense privilege to be able to show you from the scriptures why Jesus is better than anything in this world. And the reason why is because though we are unholy people, God in his grace has called us into his holy presence and made a way for that to happen through the gospel. Jesus Christ took our sin. He was punished in our place so that we could be given his holiness And we could go into the presence of God, wearing the righteousness of Christ, having our penalty taken away, having our sin removed as far as the east is from the west. No more guilt, no more shame, completely clean before him. Therefore, even in our worship today, we are thanking God for the ability to be able to enter his presence. Let's not do that lightly. Worship is the only right response to who God is. And when we think about who God is and what he's done in the gospel, it's really no wonder that this psalm is so loud. Amen? Father, we thank you so much for your word that fuels our worship. And now we want to respond in praise. We want to respond in worship that's fueled by the gospel, that's fueled by your character, your goodness, your faithfulness, your loving kindness. We want to respond now as we sing with proper affections, not empty-headed emotionalism, not empty-hearted intellectualism, but a marriage of those two that would be so perfectly united as one that our emotions and what we know would work together in tandem to praise you, to ignite every passion that we have for who you are and for what you've done, that we would rejoice in you and that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that it was finished on that cross. So God, be our fuel right now to worship you in the way that you desire, in the way that is appropriate to respond as we've studied this psalm and with a heart filled with thanksgiving and affections for who you are and for what you've done. We pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.